Hello and welcome to this very special episode of With Relish. I'm Aoife Allen. And I'm Harry Colley. Hiya. You're all really welcome. It's amazing to see all these faces out in front of us here to hear us talk about Irish food culture this evening. So thanks so much for making the journey. We're recording live as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival and the Fumbly Eat A series this evening. And just to tell you a little bit about With Relish, it's produced by the lovely Ian over here as part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. We started producing it back in early May this year and we've spoken about topics as diverse as insects in the human diet, Salmon, fishing, sustainability, the history of Irish chippers. But what binds it all together is mine and Harry's absolute love for and obsession with food, and each other, of course, but mostly with food. We love bringing people on to just chat about what's new and interesting in the Irish food scene. It was just a... Oh, my God, my notes. Um, <laughs> it was just a really nice opportunity, I think, for the two of us to just kind of get together and talk to like super interesting people about interesting things that are happening in Irish food. I think we found that there was maybe a lack of people talking about that stuff, and we just want an excuse to be talking about that stuff anyway. So on the topic of loads of interesting things happening in Irish food, this is part of Eat It, which is difficult to say, but it's E-A-T-I-T-H, Eat It, so it's Irish for to eat. And so this is the Eat It series, and that is a series of events, talks, and workshops that's run by the Fumbly and the Fumbly Stables. So please do go online to eatit.com and also to the Fumbly's website because you'll find all information there about like stuff that's coming up. So there's like bread workshops happening with this lad over here and then there's some fermentation and there's like really, really interesting things and like covering loads of bases. So if you're interested, please do go online and book yourself into something. As well as this being Eat It, it is also the Dublin Podcast Festival. So a big shout out to those guys on their very first year because it's been a stellar lineup. Um, they've been doing a lot of work and there's been huge names. So like podcast Fans will know about My Dad Wrote a Porno and S-Town and Criminal and all these other huge, huge podcasts who have come over from far and abroad and they're coming over to talk about themselves. So go and help them talk about themselves and go online and do so. This event is really close to our hearts. Harry and I are both absolutely fascinated by what people eat and why they eat it and when they eat it and how they eat it. So we're going to have so many questions for our wonderful panellists here on Irish food culture, kind of past, present and future. I think we've invited two of the best placed people in the country to speak to Irish food culture. We've got Martin McInumra on the far left here, who's a lecturer in Cahill Street, where most of Ireland's future chefs cut their teeth and also Ireland's leading food historian. And here to my immediate left, we have JP McMahon, uh, fresh off the boat from Galway, who's a chef and a restaurateur, a food writer, and the organizer of Food on the Edge, which is coming up in October. And JP's also writing a book at the moment on Irish food history over the millennia, so it's going to be an amazing thing when it comes out. Now, we've got a bit of a disclaimer for this evening. None of us on this stage really think that there's no such thing as Irish food culture. Of course there is. And we don't think there's no such thing as Irish food history. Of course there is. But, you know, Irish people have been doing fabulous things with food over the centuries and the millennia. We've some of the best beef and dairy in the world. Some of our cheese producers are winning medals and awards left, right and centre. And every week and month we hear about new artisan food producers popping up all over the country and doing really innovative, delicious, exciting things. So it's not necessarily that we don't think there's a food culture. No, not at all. I think what we're doing here tonight is like exploring the limitations as to what has made Irish food culture maybe not as successful internationally as it could have been, or indeed like domestically as well. Maybe not everybody eats Irish food all the time. So we're just kind of teasing out those ideas and seeing how and why and why not are we not all just eating bacon and cabbage all day, every day. Also tonight, so the structure is going to go a bit like 
exactly this one I'm going to tell you. Um, it is uh, starting with an introduction. But um, then there's going to be 10 minutes from each of the panellists who are going to put forward their discussion. Then myself and Eva are going to jump in for another few minutes and we're going to ask the guys, challenge them on maybe some of those things that came up. But then following that, we're going to open up questions to the floor. So please, guys, don't be shy. If there's anything you'd like to ask, we'd love to hear from you. So yeah, listen closely and then we will challenge all the guys on everything they have to say. So uh, on that note, let's get started. I'm going to hand over to JP, who's going to talk to us a little bit about Irish food in plain sight. Um, so I'd like Thanks, JP. Thank you. Um, so as the, the guys said, I'm uh, working on a, on a book at the moment um, broadly about Irish food, particularly very much from a recipe uh, uh, standpoint. And um, I suppose when I think personally about my own um, uh, upbringing in Irish food, there there isn't uh, this very wouldn't say there's very little there, but I struggle to find those moments um, that uh, that I could define a food culture. But when I look back, um, going back all the all the way to um, like archaeological records, ten thousand years ago, and they keep on changing, and there's like twelve thousand now possibly where people have been eating food in Ireland, and I suppose we always struggle to say like what is Irish food and it is a very difficult uh, thing to define but I think every uh, culture uh, has a difficulty defining I think we always look abroad and say well the Italian Italian food is very simple and I mean or we, we can define what Italian food is but when it comes to Irish food we struggle but for me Irish food is a the, the meaning of it is is a summation of the food that we have been eat the food that we have eaten on this island uh, wherever we came from and for me there's a great abundance of that and it, that is there to be mined and to be looked at in, in archives um, in, and in, in different ways whether it's, uh, whether it's as I said uh, archaeological uh, digs from midden beds where we can guess and conjecture and it was for me uh, from my, with my writer's hat on I love the I suppose the imaginative experience that you have finding um, like um, oyster shells and uh, and the possible um, <clears throat> the possibility that people ate the first settlers in um, in uh, in Ireland, whether it's up in Mount Sandal up uh, by Derry or Ferriers Cove, that there was an engagement with with food, and you could say, well, that's not a cultural experience because they were settler they were hunter gatherers and they hadn't settled. But I think it's really uh, fascinating, particularly if you, the the, the the earliest um, settlers and how they how they cooked food. So whether it was like cooking wild mussels on the on the on the on the uh, on the beach, um, in uh, in um, these kind of roughly made sacks. The, that they would just put into the fire and then the mussels would open and they would eat them. Um, and I just think that that's, for me, like, a, like a, an Irish food experience. And again, of course, that's open to criticism. You could say, well, they weren't even Irish. I mean, of course, with, if I put on like a historian's hat, you could say, well, the Irish who, the people weren't invented. I mean, you could say the 19th century, but you could say the 7th century. You could go back, I don't know when, and say, well, it was really just a wave and wave of settlers. But for me, it's still about what did those people eat and they were on this island and, and, and the different waves of whether it's the Celts or the Vikings or the Normans, each of them brought 
different food practices. And, 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 we, and if we wanted to talk about Irish food culture, we need to accept it in a very broad way. Like we can't just say, well, it's, I, I want Irish food to be just about this. Like I want it to be about wild food and foraging because that's what's sexy over in Copenhagen and that's what, uh, that's what Nordic food culture is. But they have just the same problem, problems that we have. Um, and I think that we need to, I suppose, uh, to embrace, um, to embrace, I suppose, the things that we, that we also, um, also don't like um, uh, personally. To, to I think, to appreciate um, the, the rich kind of food heritage that has happened on this island. And there is the difficulty with, with religion and with colonization, and they have contributed, of course, massively. But again, if you take it from, from a food point of view and try and, 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 and look at what food has been eaten on the island, you have, a, you have a different spectrums of, uh, of people engaging with everything from like game, like a, we have a massive tradition of game going like thousands of years, like not just recently and not just like, um, like when every time you talk game you think like big house and you think landlord and you think Protestant and hunting, but you go back like uh, 3,000 years and there's uh, uh, there's mallard and pigeon and all sorts of things that um, that have been found in terms of archaeological sites, um, and I suppose for me that's the the most the most interesting thing about um, about tapping into Irish food culture because I think it, for me it resonates so uh, so much now in the present because I suppose the, the the food I am interested in is like is is looking at. Um, stuff that grows in Ireland that can grow without, I suppose, um, without massive assistance. Like we can't grow bananas. Well, we we have grown bananas in Ireland, and they grew them out in Kylemore. Um, and we were talking about pineapples being grown up in uh, up in the Phoenix Park. So we can you can grow anything you want to grow. But I suppose for me, when uh, to like about food culture. It's about um, it's about the kind of the the terroir of the land and how what that land can give you. Um, and again, if you were um, uh, you can argue against that and go well. Look, if I can build a glass house and grow bananas, then they're just part and parcel of uh, just as much part and parcel of Irish food culture. Um, uh, and we do love, we eat an awful lot of bananas in, uh, in Ireland and banana bread and all those things. And I might want to say, I don't want bananas to be part of food culture, but that's my problem um, as, a, as a writer. But you can't just, if I want it to be about chickweed and sorrel, um, I, I, I have to really put on my, uh, um, put on um, a way in which not to, not to see those things. But uh, my primary interest in, in, in looking at it all is how, I suppose, Ireland's larder was used um, by all of the people here. And, you, and migration plays a massive part in that, colonization plays a massive part, but still there is a really rich uh, food heritage in Ireland. And I, you could say we didn't have the confidence um, as a people, <clears throat> but I think that's, that you could say that's a recent thing. You could say, well, in the last 300 years, we didn't have the confidence. Who's to, who, you can argue that the, the, the Celts of Ireland, the Vikings that came along, of course, they had confidence as well. But I mean, a lot of our, our thinking about the past is conditioned by um, how we are now. Um, and for me, I suppose the most interesting place to, um, to think about Irish food is to think about almost like at its prehistory, 
because that coincides with all of the things that I, um, I think is most interesting. So if you take Mount Sandal, for example, uh, three of the most common foods eaten there were salmon, trout, and eel. And I think they're very representative. So this is uh, 8,000 8, years ago. Uh, these are representative of uh, um, Irish food experiences. And of course, they were eating them and, and catching them at the, at the, at the, river's, uh, at the river's edge. But there are still there are foods that resonate with me now, in particular eel. I think that's, uh, and, that's and so it, it, it forges a connection between uh, me in Ireland now and whoever, uh, whoever um, they were um, uh, 8,000 um, 8, years ago. And also, uh, I think the simplicity of the food that they had to eat is also, again, the, something that, uh, that, that, I, uh, that I love. I mean, they probably didn't, have, didn't even have salt um, or, or oil. And I think it's just fascinating for me to try and think about how people cooked uh, without some of the most uh, like, uh, fundamental elements that we, that, we take for, that we take for granted now, but still produce something that's nutritious and, um, uh, and something that people had to, uh, had to feed on. Um, so for me, that's like my, my, I suppose, take on, um, on Irish food culture. And I think it, is, it, has always, it has always been there and it is always there. I think we just have to, we have a lot of um, blinkers on in relation to our own, I suppose, personal um, uh, biases or the way we, the way, um, we were brought up in relation to how, how food was treated. But I think it, there's a rich heritage there. Thanks very much for that, JP. And we're going to have Martine McNamara, Dr. Mark McNamara, talking to us about the limitations of Irish cuisine and throughout history. How are you all? You all well? I was asked to give some description of food culture, you know, for what we mean by food culture, you know, as a start, so that when we're actually talking about food culture, what am I talking about or what do we understand by that? But I was, I was looking, um, Dr. Lucy Long, who's the director of, and founder of the Centre for Food and Culture, she defines, uh, she says, the food culture refers to the practices, attitudes, and beliefs, as well as the networks and institutions surrounding the production, distribution, and consumption of food. It encompasses the concepts of foodways, cuisine, and food systems, and includes the fundamental understandings a group has about food, historical and current conditions shaping that group's relationship to food, and the ways in which the group uses food to express identity, community, values, status, power, artistry, and creativity. It also includes the group's definition of what items can be food, what is tasty, healthy, and socially appropriate for specific subgroups or individuals, and when, how, why, and with whom those items can or should be consumed. So that's quite uh, you know, sophisticated, as they say. Clearly, food is not, uh, you know, it, it's not a simple thing. What and where and with who you eat, you know, or, you know and, and what works for you one day and won't in another situation, you know, differ. So, I sort of, I was asked to maybe look at, you know, do we have a cult food culture? Are we at a rebirth or a birth maybe or of a, a special moment here in Ireland with food? Uh, if so, you know, what has led to this? If so, what is happening? And also maybe to look at like, what are the factors that would lead 
people to believe. I think it was uh, so around 15 years ago, I think Kevin Myers, he was writing the Irishman's Diary, still in the Irish Times at the time, and I think he called Irish cuisine an oxymoron, you know? And uh, it always stood with me. I'm saying, why, why is that? You know, why is it that people don't believe we have a cuisine? So there are a number of factors, I suppose, that I sort of just took a few notes earlier on saying, you know, okay, what, what, what would be the thing? Probably the elephant in the room is a thing called the famine. <laughs> because when people think about food and when they think about uh, Ireland, they normally think about the famine. And they think about you know you know thousand people dying and a thousand people or sorry thousand geez, a million people dying a million people emigrating or whatever you know and uh, they're saying you know people dying in the ditches the potatoes the whole lot and they say sure geez, that's Ireland and that's food and sure Christ is amazing where any of us are still alive okay but we have to remember as as JP has said that you know we've, the people living on this island for over eight thousand years and even more you know and they've been doing quite well uh, during that time now we also need to remember that we had a very strong vibrant food culture long before the potato ever came here like the potato is only a relative recent sort of in that span of eight thousand years the potato is only a dot of 400 years or so okay uh, and then when the potato, potato did arrive you know what happened it gradually got assimilated and something miraculous happened because actually it's not just that it happened in Ireland, but it happened particularly in Ireland, but it happened all through Europe because actually the potato meant that there was an abundant supply of food and people could actually live healthy lives on very little. So it meant, like, if you have a look at nutritionists who look at the Irish people, they said, and even Adam Smith in his um, The Wealth of Nations, he speaks about the Irish men and women being the most good-looking, the tallest, the finest of, of the British Isles and even of Europe, okay? So on this diet we had of potato and oats and milk and you know, a bit of herring and a bit of pig, you know, whatever, you know, there was enough there to actually lead healthy lives, to be able to be good looking, to be able to actually find a partner by the time you were 19, to be able to have a whole load of kids, to be able to make sure if you kept on doing this every 19 years, it meant that the population was rising. At the eve of the famine, uh, Ireland was the most heavily, or the most densely populated part of Europe. And I'm going to say that again, in case you didn't get it the first time, <laughs> right? That on the eve of the famine, right, Ireland was the most densely populated country in Europe. So you go up those Connemara and Sligo, and you go up those hills, and you see all the Bohans or the the, you know, the Forlachy, and you see, you know, the, people were living all up those hills. You know, there was 8.4 million or whatever people living here at that time, okay? So I think we have to remember that, uh, and suddenly there was a shock. Of course there was a shock, all right? But we have to remember there was wonderful food for 8,000 years. There was wonderful food before the potato. There was wonderful food during the potato, and there was wonderful food after the potato. And also we have to remember that actually people lived very well during the famine, and... I think there were, I can't remember the number, but there was something like 16,000 pigs being exported every day during the years of the famine, without talking about all the red wheat and oats and everything else. So you could say we didn't have a famine because there was enough food on the island to support everyone who lived on the island, but that's another story. All right, I won't get too political. So the next thing then that affects people wondering about why don't we have a culture is religion. As much as we get political now, we bring in the Catholic Church, you know, all right? So now, 
the Catholic Church has been here, your know, religion's been here since the fifth century, all right? Palladius came, then St. Patrick, all right? And I think it's really important to remember, a lot of people think about Irish food and they think about na nationalism and the food of a nation, like, you know, JP's talking about the food of Italy or the food of France or the food of Spain or all this sort of stuff. Like, food, you know, you don't really have a food of France or a food of Spain or a food of Italy because the north of Italy is completely different than the south of Italy. The north of France is completely different than the south of France. You know what I mean? The north of Spain is completely different than the south of Spain and the foods eaten are very different. So really when we're looking at Ireland, we probably should be looking at not just Ireland, or we shouldn't be asking questions, oh, our food, we're very, just very like England, Scotland and Wales. So why shouldn't we be? For God's sake, we're the same climate, the same geography, the same, you know, and we've somewhat shared sort of experience. So naturally, we should have the same types of food. Naturally, you know, there are some regional differences. There are regional differences between the Blan, you know, the Ulster Fry, and the various things like in, 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 in Ireland as it is at the moment. But naturally, that there's differences. And, you know, you go up to Scotland and you go up to Donegal, there's more oats. You, know, you come further south, there's more wheat because the land, that's, that's what the land grows. Okay, so we, I think we should be looking at the food of a region as opposed to the food of a nation, particularly since our nation, depending on how you look at a nation, you know, it's, it's, when do we start? You know, is it 1922? You know, do we start, you know, when do we start? You know, the, but uh, anyway, so the other thing about that is that we've had a very interesting relationship with the Catholic Church going all the way back because we seem to have always had uh, quite an aesthetic, or an aesthetic, not an aesthetic, an aesthetic, should I say, uh, approach to, uh, to religion, in that you know, we like to have these monks go out to the Schelligs and places like that and live on very little and, and, and that sort of stuff. We also have to remember that we had a different form of church, so that when King Henry II came with the Norman invasion, that actually the Pope had asked him to come and sort out the Irish because he wanted to put manners on the Irish church. And with that, Normans coming in here, they brought in a number of uh, European um, religious, um, the Franciscans, the, the Cistercians, all these came in afterwards to put sort of manners on the wild Irish uh, church as it was. Uh, move on a little bit later, just for a real bit of confusion, that uh, William of Orange, uh, the Battle of the Boyne, uh, the Pope was on uh, William of Orange's side in the Battle of the Boyne. Did you know that? There you go. We need to learn our history because it's not half as simple as it's not black and white, it's not Catholic against Protestants, it's not us against them, it's not all this sort of stuff, it's, it's confusing. <laughs> it's difficult, all right? So anyway, so religion gets confusing. All right, and then when suddenly we did, after the penal laws, when that started to abate, what we got is we got this sort of harsh form of Catholicism as opposed to the gentle form of Catholicism that they had in Europe. Uh, I was often trying to figure out, geez, how come they, they seem to do very well in Spain and in, in Portugal and these places, you know, with their, with their fish and all that sort of stuff. But they got a special dispensation from the Pope after the Crusades that they could eat meat whenever they wanted to, bar around four days of Lent and the four special days of Holy Week, and the rest of the time, no problem, because of the bull at the Crusades. So you know what I mean? So you learn these things and you realize, Christ, it's not all black and white, and there's different forms of Christianity and, and things. So, 
one of the final things before I move on, because I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you, but there's, there's two things. There's number one, one of the issues we have as well is that a lot of people who study Irish food, because they don't have an understanding of the Irish language, and this is not just about Irish food, but about Irish history, is because they don't have an understanding of the Irish language, they actually ignore complete tracts of primary sources that they just ignore because they don't engage with them. And Vincent Morley has, has, has brought a book out uh, called The Enlightened Mind in the 17th Century uh, recently, which he sort of discusses this fact. And uh, if you are familiar with the Irish language and the wealth of poetry and songs and place names and all that sort of stuff, you'll see that it's absolutely replete with food references and food history. I know Manchon McGann's in the audience has done work on this in the past and sort of Irish words to do with food and that. And like uh, you mentioned, um, Ferreter's Cove down in, in uh, there's a place down in, in, in Kerry there called Reen on, oh sorry, it's, it's uh, Reen on Ain Wally. Kos Reen on Ain Valley, the cove of the solitary ras. <laughs> so, and a ras, for those who are not familiar, a ras is actually a rough sort of fish, a uh, rockfish that has been found in the archaeological records for over 8,000 years. And in Connemara, where my father's from, there's a traditional dish called balach bui, which is a salted ballon ras. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a while. <laughs> Thanks so much, Martin. Cheers. Guys, thank you both so much for an incredibly interesting and enlightening discussion so far. So we just have a couple of questions that we'd like to give to both of you. I think I'd like to ask this to Marcin first. So, so much of our culture is recognised around the world, music and literature, but particularly pub and drinking culture. And I just wonder, can you speak to the idea that maybe, I suppose, our drinking habits, which occupy so much of our time and which we celebrate so widely, have they kind of eaten into the social space that in other cultures is preserved for eating together and eating socially. Can you talk to kind of what, what has drink done to the Irish food culture, if anything? Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a, I was thinking about this recently. My, my wife is a fashion designer and she talks about, and, and, and other people who are involved in the arts, and they sometimes they look at the Irish and they look at how the Irish put themselves together and how the Irish have a sort of a visual. that we're, We seem to be much more of a literal people and an oral people than an artistic people, all right, in, in that visual arts. We don't seem to have the, the grow or the love of the aesthetic that maybe other countries have. But what we have in spades is that we could talk, as they say, I could talk for Ireland, you know what I mean? As an, and part of that sort of literal and oral tradition stems quite often from the pub. You know, because the thing about the pub, or not even the pub, but the idea about the alcohol. We have to remember that the pub is a modern enough phenomenon and it's, a, it's, an, it's an urban rather than a rural phenomenon. And in the rural area, you had the she-beans, but you had the, you know, the tradition of going to people's houses, of telling stories by the fireside, of singing songs, of the shanachas of the lore, and a bit of putchin to keep you warm along the way. But so it was always very much in a sort of an oral tradition uh, and we're great storytellers and we're really into that. Whereas if you look at other cultures, they seem to maybe spend a higher proportion of their wealth. We seem to be tied up with land and talk, you know, so we get mortgages and then we drink and talk. Whereas other countries, what they do is that they rent 
and then they spend more of their disposable income on food and more of their disposable income on clothes and more of their disposable income on you know, nice things like furniture. And as they do better in life, they, spend, they move into a bigger apartment with better furniture and better clothes and better food. And as they retire, then they scale down. Whereas we just you know, go in there, 20 whatever, get the mortgage, get tied down, drink, give out about the bankers, you know, the rest of it, you know what I mean? So, you know, I think that may have something to do with it. I have a question now for JP, which is to do with forming a new Irish cuisine. Well, not necessarily a new Irish cuisine, but maybe we're talking about around about the cusp of a revival or that there's something going on here whereby we're looking at Irish food culture and we're promoting it and trying to get it back to the Irish. And I wonder, and this is a tricky way to frame it, but if we look at, this is well what Marty mentioned earlier on about the foundation of a state and the foundation of a nation and a nationality, and we're trying to make a national cuisine uh, which is internationally recognised, are we looking back in the same way that we look at the 1916 Easter Rising as a failed coup that, that began a state? Are we looking now at a failed cuisine and trying to inspire some kind of national or cultural identity through that? Um, God, I mean, possibly so. I mean, as, as, as Martin was saying, is it a, a birth or a rebirth or is it a, a dying? Um, and it's a very, it's a, I think it's very difficult um, to, to try and put it into um, a kind of global space. And, and like really when you think of the, the nation and the nation state and you're really going back to like the 19th century and that's not very long ago. And now we seem to be pulling apart from that or are we going back to it with Brexit and then want to define Englishness? And like, as I said, like you can, I can want Irish food to be about the larder of Ireland in the same way that the Nordics want to be, want the, their food to be defined by their larder. Um, and, and the difficulty with that is, um, is that you exclude a whole bunch of people um, and the, the whole world is made up of uh, immigrants as, as much as all of the Irish are. And, and for me, that's the, the ethical problem. I mean, I do think that we can create um, an Irish food culture um, based on our larder, but we simultaneously have to create one based on culture. And that cultural experience has to come about with the many peoples that are on this island. So I don't think we can make an Irish food culture and then forget about all the Chinese takeaways. Like, so we have, to, uh, we have to embrace a kind of multiculturalism approach as well as saying, well, okay, this is the, the, the larder that we have, but we want to talk about Irish food culture <clears throat> on a broader scheme. You have to, a lot of that... I think that the that has happened in the last like five or ten years has been inspired by elsewhere. You were just saying about the the baker that came back from San Francisco and like the same with when I travel all the time and I bring ideas back and I go, this has to be in Ireland. This needs to be in Ireland. I mean, Food on the Edge was expired, inspired by being outside Ireland, by people celebrating food culture and, and me saying, we can celebrate this back at home. We just don't have the confidence as, uh, as Martin was saying. So... It's a kind of catch-22, and it's, and it's a difficulty one. Particularly at a personal level, you can define, you can say what you want, but that gets much diff more difficult at state level, when how does the state define Irish food? And we, we were talking about this earlier on, by like so many people that come here, the chefs, don't realize we have any fish. 
and you know that's a good joke because we're an island but then i mean we have kind of like forgotten like we just forgot about our 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 fishmongers and our fishermen and and we kind of gave everything to the farmers and to the beef and to a certain sense we just followed um uh the british in that respect i mean ireland was a grazing ground and we just kind of like as as they say they we changed the color of the post box and um, we just kind of said well sure it's working the cows are there and the people are there let's just continue the whole cow thing um and when when we advertise ireland abroad at a state level like it's generally about land and you know, as we say you see the little snippet of the sea in the background just so someone can go to the cliffs some more um but uh but it's generally framed around land and farming and we won't like i don't think we can get out of that on t on, unless we take a very broad food cultural approach I and think, yeah no I, I think the issue is self-belief and i think you know if there is a resurgence or if we're at a special moment or if we're on the at the dawn of a special moment of food in this country it's because of self-belief but where did that self-belief come from okay from my perspective i've been thinking about this and i was thinking that uh i think about okay who are the key figures who are the people who have actually led this revolution to get to this moment and first of all i spoke i thought about myrtle allen and she had self-belief, and she trusted in the raw materials and the good country house cooking, and she didn't try and dress it up or Frenchify it or anything, and she believed in it, and people loved it, and people still love it, all right? I was thinking about, you know, naturally there was other people, I said, you know, Pierre Roland was the, was, he was a French chef here in the Russell Hotel in Harcourt Street, and he trained a whole generation that came up, including uh, the Ryan, you know, Declan Ryan and Michael Ryan, who were in their Butis Lodge. They were important because they brought, but they went abroad as well, and they worked over in France, and they came back with good ideas. And, uh, you know, there's people like, you know, we think there about, you know, the, the Cheese, uh, Veronica Steele, Peter Ward, the Sheridan brothers, like all these people. But really it's about, you, you go, you, you believe in yourself, but sometimes you need to go away to see Christ, you know, to realize what you have at home, okay? But I think a moment for me was the Italia 1990, because Italia 1990 suddenly, you know, the Irish soccer team were on a world stage, and we were able to get together, and we were able to actually get an Irish flag, a tricolor, and wave it without being associated that you were a provo. <laughs> All right, and, th and that's, you see, you know, you have to, that was a special, that was the first time in my life that you could actually wave a tricolor or have a tricolor outside your house without being, oh, geez, that's the provo family there again, you know what I mean? Or the Black Armands or Bobby Sands or this, you know what I mean? All right? <laughs> or being, or the special branch stopping you, you know, or whatever. Okay, you know, so that it, it was a special moment and there was sort of an explosion there, I think, as well, that suddenly you could be proud of the country and you could be and get together and be proud of this. And then people went off and people started to come back because shortly after that then, you know, the, the economy started to pick up and it picked up when people who were educated because, like, we have to look back at Donna O'Malley and the education and then that led on to third level and it led on that, you know, we're, 
actually we're in totally overqualified country now you know what i mean they reckon that we're just too bloody clever you know and uh, so but the idea is so suddenly we went away we got experience we saw what they were doing in other countries we realized oh, jesus what we have at home is twice as good as that you know what i mean and all that sort of stuff and we came back with self-confidence like you speak there about lads coming back from san francisco or people coming back from you know noma or whatever they're coming back, but they're coming back with self-belief, but they're actually, they've gone away this time. What's great about it is that, that the crowd that have gone away in the last 10, 15 years have gone away with self-belief, but unfortunately, you know, with during the recession, then maybe, you know what I mean, maybe a bit bitter or whatever, or, or not even that. Sometimes they went away because they went away just to get experience. They didn't go away because they were forced. Some were forced, like, I you know, back in the 80s we were forced, and I know there's a lot who were forced there in, in, in the last 10 years as well, but a lot of people are choosing to go away, choosing to gain good experience, and then hoping to come back. So I think that's going to be the base of it. I think travel, experience, education, and big-time self-belief. Um, I think I have one more question for, for both of you. It'd be great to hear from both of you. But um, So an Italian friend told me last week that when she moved to Ireland first 10 years ago, um, she was astonished at how people ate their lunch. Um, she saw lads in her class, in her master's class, just taking a, hand sa a ham sandwich and putting the whole thing into their mouth, kind of while, they, while standing up, while still chatting to their mates, like barely even looking at what they were eating. Now, Martine, you touched a little bit on that aesthetic um, Catholicism. Um, do you think that's at the root of that attitude to eating where it's kind of fuel maybe in a lot of cases? I mean, obviously there are lots of Irish people who enjoy sitting down to a good meal, but the kind of fueling up, or is there, is there a psychology behind that that we can tease out at all? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure because it's nearly that sort of, that for, the form of Catholicism we had was nearly more like sort of puritanical Protestantism, you know what I mean, that you shouldn't enjoy yourself, that you shouldn't yeah. enjoy your food, that it was there just as nourishment. And, you know, and there is a bit of that in a lot of people, but I don't think we're unique. I think there is, a, you know, in anywhere, I think we can be romantic in speaking about the Italians or the, this, that, and the other. You swear that geez, every Italian eats well, they don't. Yeah. Every, you know, French, every, everyone in the world, we, <laughs> everywhere you go in the world, people have bad habits and people have good habits. You have people who have good food, food traditions and people who don't, you know, and uh, so I think we have to remember that. But um, yeah, I do, I, 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 I get what you're saying. Like there was the whole jumbo breakfast roll thing going on for a long time. Um, there's less of that now. Uh, maybe that's one of the good things out of the recession, but uh, there, you know, now there's a new thing that's called the uh, spice bag, you know, yeah. or the three and ones or the four and ones or whatever, you know. So, uh, you know, all of these things, you know, we're sort of unique in our own, own way, maybe. Maybe we should be celebrating some of these things. I don't know, you know. Maybe, maybe someone from the outside might come in and say, wow, you've got a unique thing going on here. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything to say to that, JP? Yeah, and, and, and I suppose, I don't know why we keep mentioning the Italians, but uh, we, were, we, were, we were talking about this. But what, I mean, one of my first defining uh, food experiences uh, was with Italian food. And, and, it was to, and, and to reverse that, it was the first time I realized um, food could be more than just nourishment. Um, and, and, and there's probably like two or three different um, 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 occasions but like the first time we had pasta in our house, which was like in the, some, sometime in the 1980s, uh, and it was like completely like um, um, exotic. Um, and now you would think like, what, what are you talking about? Are you mad? And um, the first time I had spaghetti bolognese was in a, in a hotel in Tipperary 
when I was, I don't know what age I was, we were all down, we were all being given the, the whether it was bacon and cabbage or, what, I don't know what we were all given, we were all getting the same thing and there was eight of us, was six uh, kids and two parents and I said, I'm having the spaghetti bolognese and my father's like, you won't eat it and I was like, I'll eat it and my mother said, you're not going to eat that uh, and I said, I will eat it and it came down and I ate it and it was just, for some reason, I, it was, I enjoyed it and, and I came out of a, a family that, um, while my grandmother baked, um, um, my, uh, my other grandmother burned sausages um, in aluminium pots, and you could taste the aluminium out of the sausage. Um, and that was, uh, so I had two contrasting upbringings from uh, uh, one like diehard working class uh, woman in Bray, and the other one in Mount Merion, uh, like upwardly mobile. And that was kind of like the two contrasts of my food experience. But my father, um, and like, he's not here, so I can't, well, he'd probably see it online. Like he, I was always like, shut up and eat your food. Like shut up and eat your food. And then you're gone, get, leave. There was no pleasurable conversation. How are you doing? Did you have a good day? Uh, it was like, shut up and eat your food. And, and, and I always remember, my mother is saying to my father, would you stop eating your food so fast? Would you stop eating your food so fast? And he's like, I'm finished. I'm gone. He's gone. He's like, and maybe he didn't want to talk at the dinner table, but it was, and then it was like, don't be choking on your food. Don't choke on your food. And, and, and one of the things I think, were, when I, to bring it back to fish, like, and I, we, I do a lot of um, cooking classes, like as a nation, we're petrified. I think it's like a cultural psychosis about fish bones. And it's like, don't eat that fish now, it has bones in it, it'll kill you. And, uh, and it was like, is there bones in it? Can I get fish with no bones in it? And I speak to my fishmonger, Stefan, who's French, who still gets asked questions. Is there a fish without the bones in it? Um, at the fish market in, in, in Galway. So we still have this trauma. I don't know how many people died of fish bones, but... Um, in Ireland, but I grew up going, I can't, I better not eat that fish, it's going to be a bone and I'm going to die. And then you pass that on to your friend going, be careful about that fish, you might kill you. Um, and, and, and that kind of ties into uh, that kind of eat something not out of pleasure, but out of, uh, because you're hungry. And that's about getting the ham sandwich and just ramming it into your mouth and going, I'm finished, I'm done. Well, let's go on. let's move on and have a chat um, about, about something. Um, but I do, just to, 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 to agree with Martin's point about being great talkers and having that literary um, uh, aesthetic. And I, I do think, as he's saying about, like, I was thinking about furniture and, um, and, uh, and I do think it's changing. And I think the whole cultural process has to change. I don't think you can just bring food and then suddenly have it. I think the whole, the whole ensemble has to, has to change and that uh, if we continue to, to just get the mortgage at 21 um, and then just go for the family and then just keep on eating uh, and, and don't stop, we might be better off uh, um, probably thinking a little bit more about, um, about, uh, about food. There's, a, there's an ad at the moment for one of the mortgages uh, companies, and it's about the fella who's having a ham sandwich, as you said yourself, <laughs> and that every ham sandwich he has at his desk is getting them sort of a step closer to that mortgage, you know what I mean? And, and, and there's, so, like, so, so maybe there is something there, yeah. We're being conditioned to think that way, as it is. Uh, JP, you mentioned or touched on... Um, I suppose, resources and class when it comes to eating. And uh, Martin, you also talked about um, the confidence, I suppose, of Ballymaloo and what they've gone ahead with. I wonder if when we're promoting an Irish cuisine and an Irish culture and trying to get people to eat local, eat healthy, eat organic, and da, 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 which seems to be a big focus in kind of promoting Irish food, 
are we alienating a lot of Irish people by promoting a food that is out of the many times average weekly income or food budget that's spent on something? It's far easier, far cheaper to eat shit. Um, and so, yeah, are we being exclusionary in promoting like, this? I'll just like throw a spanner in the works. Um, but I, like, I would really, I'd question whether we want a food culture in Ireland at state level. And, and that seeps down because like we've been going on for like, probably like, I am only at it like 15 years, but at what point can you turn around and say in 15 years time, no, we have the opportunity to make organic food more accessible. We had the opportunity to make, try and push, I don't know, reduce industrial pig farming and try and make this, like we have those possibilities now and I think we're overlooking at them and the state would say, oh, it's just the market. Oh, like, I mean, there's loads of people and they want cheap food, therefore we should just let the market play out. But that's what happened in a lot of cases with the famine. It was like, oh, there's all these people starving, there's loads of food, let's just see what happens. And all the food is leaving and they're going, they have no food. Well, if we just keep it on going and then it's going, ah, it's over, it's grand, it's done. Uh, and I, and I, I wonder whether, I think we need, uh, like, how many politicians do we have who are foodies, who are, love food? And I don't think we have those people. I think we have, we have, we, we certainly have people who like eating, but I don't know if we have someone who goes, do you know what's really important for Ireland? Um, we need to like get our scallop industry back and we need to say, we need to start selling scallops in the shell, like the way they have all over in, in all over Europe. And I did a recent article about this and every, I found everyone was blaming everyone. Like the fishmonger is blaming the EHO, the EHO is blaming the fisherman, the fisherman is blaming the EU, but no one, they don't want to come together collectively and say, okay, there's five of us making the decision, how do we make this possible? And it's just, and, and, the, and the, the, the end result was, it's just the market. People want scallops out of their shell, therefore there's no testing centers, therefore the fishmongers won't do them, therefore, therefore, therefore. But nobody would actually say, let's all sit down and make it possible. And I think sometimes when you look at different uh, European countries, they seem to have be more proactive. Particularly, like I spend a lot of time in Copenhagen, and they're, they're so proactive on organic farming, even though it's, I think it's 5% of their, and when you go there, you think everyone's organic. And then when you're there, they're all given out saying they're not organic enough, but we're like at one or two. We're like, we're, we're very, very bad. Um, and um, at least you, when you go there, there seems to be a little bit of political will. I was there recently and they had the Danish Minister of Education at a wild food event. And like I'm saying, I don't know who the Minister of Education is at the moment. But anyway, um, I don't know if he got to any like, serious food events that whereas there wasn't the ploughing championships. Um, and I think that he needs to be at events like Ballymaloo or uh, the Lit Fest or Food on the Edge. or Eat events. Here. Or, yeah, absolutely. Um, and because if they, they're the ones who, I suppose, are uh, at, the, I suppose at the helm. And if we don't have people like that, then I don't know. Then I think that you could have a big failure at the, um, um, uh, of the Irish food thing that's, 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 that's moving along. Yeah. Marcin, do you think that we are, in promoting an indigenous cuisine, excluding many Irish people? Um... No, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's an issue. Re I really don't think it's an issue because people say that you know it's cheaper to eat crap, but it's actually not. 
You know what I mean? It's cheaper to make a pot of soup and to make a stew or to make a whatever. That's much cheaper. And But one of the major issues that's missing at the moment is actually the cooking skills. And that needs to go back to primary schools and secondary schools and home economics and all that sort of stuff because it's a life skill. You know, it's really, really important. So, you know, I, I was at a talk recently about actually food in emergency care for families, you know, who are in emergency, you know, homeless families in emergency care. And they got so fed up because they were being supplied food, but they were being supplied food, but where they were eating, they were eating in a row. They couldn't eat in front of each other. Uh, they were eating where there was sort of a camera looking at them all the time. So they felt, you know, that they were constantly under surveillance. Uh, they could, if they cooked in the kitchen themselves, they had to eat it in the kitchen, whereas if they got a takeout, they could go up to their room, and then they ended up getting takeouts and stuff, but then the takeouts were more expensive, but they could go to their room, and then it's not as healthy. So it's not really that it's cheap. You think it is cheaper, but it's not cheaper. You know, it's much cheaper you know, to actually feed a family if you have the cooking skills, but unfortunately, what we're missing is we're missing that sort of education, that sort of cultural capital of teaching people how to you know, say teach it, you know, give them on a fish, you know, teach them how to fish, teach them how to cook. You know? I think that's the message. Teach yeah. them how to cook, and, get them cooking. And I think um just with with um with Food on the Edge this year we're we're working with just one primary school and just talking about, about food in the school. It's where my, my two daughters go. And like, I would love to see a food subject at primary school level. And I know at transition year, there's been a lot done, and you can take food as a subject for transition year now. But I don't, like, and this, goes, this ties in with what Martin is saying, is that we can't expect people to eat any better if they spend, like, the primary and secondary school thinking the food is irrelevant. Because it's just up to the parents and culture. That's what it comes down to. You do English and maths, you do all these things that are necessary. But like food should be a subject. To, and whether it takes in a bit of science and a bit of farming and a bit of cooking, whatever way it is, it is possible. But at the same time, the will has to be there to, uh, to, um, to make that subject possible. But then the principal of the school told me that in the Irish curriculum, there's no time for eating. It's not even mentioned. And I never really knew this, that there's, there's leisure time and you can do your exercise, but you stuff your ham sandwich into your mouth while you're running. That there's no designated eating time, sit down, eat, so there's no space even to say, what are you eating today? What is your lunch? Where well, let's sit down and eat. We're going to eat. And I think it, it comes back, Michael Pollan said this, the food writer, that the table, and whether it's a table in a restaurant or a table at home, the table is, is, is an important um, a symbol for, for how, we, how we communicate in society. And, and, that, and that's, that's being lost. And like, if we really don't put the effort in, like, like food should be up there with mats. Because what's the point in having loads of engineers that don't know how to cook, or don't know how to, or working uh, on uh, uh, the techies who work for, uh, for Google and LinkedIn, and then uh, none of them know how to cook, but they know how to reprogram the world. I, I, I was thinking there just recently about, you know, there's a new thing called Soylent. Are people familiar with Soylent? But uh, so, and seemingly an awful lot in the tech industry love this idea of Soylent because you can actually have your nutritionally balanced sort of thing and just drink it and you're sorted. You've got all your carbohydrates and your proteins and everything. Like, oh, well in the pub, existence. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking that, Jesus, that was the potatoes. Do you know what I mean? That was us before the famine. As in, we had this perfect thing called the potato and a bit of, what you call it, you know, blah, a bit of buttermilk and, and or whatever. It created, gave you the perfect nutrition as an Ian Miller who's done research in this show that actually the Irish population was far healthier before the famine than at any time since right on on the diet we had 
And so we had soil lent ahead of all the techies, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, so it, you know, sometimes you need to look at history and you need to start looking at what's going on at the moment and actually start making connections, start joining the dots and start asking questions and ask, geez, where are we going? Thank you very much for that. Cheers. So now we look to you, lovely audience. Yes. Um, I would just like to ask you, when do you think we started eating for flavor as opposed to for sustenance in our history? Oh, like in our when history. do you think flavor took over? God. Did it? Has it? Uh, yeah. No. Like, I mean, I certainly think, like, I think it would be post, uh, Martin might, Martin might know this, certainly post, uh, like, agricultural revolution. Because then you're talking about uh, much more settled communities and flavor coming into like a, a dish that was being cooked. Whereas I, don't, I think you could argue that pre-people um, pre settling, the food was, was being, being consumed by and large for, um, um, for, for nutrition. But I, like they talk about the, um, the hazelnut economy of Europe um, pre... Um, uh, pre-settled and, and I think that like, hazelnuts are very nice so I do think that I don't I think it's very difficult to think about eating and uh, and flavor I know like personally and and it's some it's a good thing to to think about yourself I mean when was the first time you you uh, experience food as a as a flavor um, and and certainly one of the the defining my defining moments was um uh, well, it wasn't really a defining moment. It was just in a sandwich. But it was the first time. It was the first time my mum had put salt on a tomato, and it was actually that was for your father. You shouldn't eat in that sandwich. Um, and then I, but then I realised I was like, oh my god, the tomato tastes louder. I remember thinking, God, the tomato tastes really loud. And then and then I realised that flavour that you could uh, you could augment. Flavor was before that. I always just thought food tastes like X or food tastes like Y, but that's like personally. But I do think it comes with. I mean, flavor comes with culture, and I think flavor is bound um, with uh, bound in with uh, culture. You might have something to add, March. Well, I think since humans existed, you know, your first choice has been flavor because how did people actually select what foods that they actually you know, farmed, what foods did they actually eat? They tried, you know, there was the idea about sweetness, bitterness, saltiness, all that sort of stuff. You know, they naturally were going to go back to what they liked. They weren't going to keep going back to the silent if they didn't like it sort of thing, you know what I mean? That wasn't there at the time. But so I think flavor has always been important. And then also the idea about flavor, what is flavor? Like that it's taste plus aroma, you know, so it's all of the, and we're, you know, there's a lot of new research coming out on that as well about, you know, there was the old idea about the tongue and only certain parts of the tongue tasted this. And, you know, that, you know, there's new research coming that shows that there's taste buds in different parts of the body and all that sort of stuff and the importance of the nose as well. And anyone who's ever had a cold and can't taste their food will, will appreciate that. Uh, but I think, you know, it's so culturally shaped because, you know, you taste whatever you're given and you get used to a flavor that you're given. You know, the first time you've ever had a dark coffee or a pint of Guinness or a bitter chocolate or whatever, you didn't like it normally, you know. Whereas I've seen you know, sort of kids in Guatemala or something like that who you know, eat drinking little espressos at the age of three or two, you know what I mean? And try giving that to a kid here, you know. So, you know, it's all very, very different, all right? Now, we know that certain sweetness, we know that actually 
children, they've done work, you know, that they like certain sweetness and they know that they're sort of a face of dis, you know, disgust with bitter stuff for children. But certain things can be, and can be developed over time. Like think of chilies, think of you know, certain uh, foods that we would say, geez, you wouldn't eat that or you wouldn't give that to a child. Or even that's one of the problems, I think, as well, is that actually we're making these assumptions that you wouldn't give that to a child, so let's give them the chicken nuggets and the chips or whatever, instead of actually giving them an option and letting them try things. I know my eldest uh, daughter, she, geez, she, she was much more adventurous than her mother. So when her mother went away, I'd bring her off now to sushi places and trying this, that, and the other, you know? So you, you, you develop that as if what you see as a child, you develop, you know, it, it sticks with you coming, coming up. So I think that's part of the taste. I'm going to throw out a question. I'm going to come over to you afterwards, but um, <laughs> here we are. Um, I, I feel like the, the strongest things that you, that you guys have said so far this evening is that uh, the way we are going to nurture and build an, a food culture is with self-belief. And that so much of that is now coming from people going abroad, getting inspired and coming back. And that's brilliant for those people um, because they do have a lot of influence when they come back in and they, and they really inspire other people at home. But surely we have to be able to inspire or instill self-confidence in the people who don't go away. You know, how do we get those people to value sitting around a table with a meal with their family as opposed to just hoofing it into them and then running down to the pub? With a hammer. Um, <laughs> no, slowly, definitely slowly. And um, slowly with a hammer. Um, I, um, no, I, th and I, I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the purposes behind, um, behind Food on the Edge was that, was that kind of inverse, like the kind of learning from the outside in. Like, I mean, too often, we're, I think we're, sometimes we're so parochial in Ireland, like, and I mean, that the GA, I mean, if there's any fans of the GA, I'm sorry, um, uh, that we, we fight, like, amongst each other, like, in, regionally. And then we forget that we're such a small island. And one of the things that we, we need to do is when we, when we um, whoever comes back or you have, you have an idea, that often it's, uh, there isn't that, uh, that culture of sharing or trying to, in, uh, trying to pass on um, experience. And, and for me, one of, the, one of the ideas behind bringing the, all these food people uh, from elsewhere, because someone said to me, well, like, why are you, you're doing it again? You're bringing all these other people from elsewhere to Ireland and you're not highlighting, well, you should have all Irish chefs. Um, and I said to him, sure, no one's going to pay a ticket for 450 euros to see a bunch of Irish chefs. Um, but that was a joke, lads. Uh, and uh, like, hopefully we'll get there. But my point is that to get there, we need to inspire the people that are here. And, 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 and I think it's sometimes Food on the Edge is like just throwing stones in the water and the ripples going out. And I think in that way, uh, hopefully, if it, if it, if it has uh, uh, momentum and keeps going, that in five years' time, we'll be able to look back and, and say, well, this came out of um, that event and, and it affected different parts of Ireland and different places in Ireland. And there's still so much like um, untouched. Oh, like, I mean, I'm from uh, Dublin, but I live in Galway. But Dublin, Galway and Cork, and there's so many other areas that have, that, that I think need injections of this. And they're beautiful. Is that someone telling me to be quiet? Oh, sorry. Uh, not a bell. Beautiful uh, places like Roscommon and Leitrim and all these places that I think uh, 
can be mined and tapped for uh, anything that is done, but you, you need to have the self-belief to go there and then do it. Because uh, some of you said you're going to open a fine, dos fine dining restaurant in Roscommon. Some would say, well, you're mental. Um, but it takes someone mad enough to do that and then to, to, for people to, to learn from that. Surely it needs to just start not with a fine dining restaurant in Roscommon, but just with a good local cafe. I think and, it has, and I th and I think think it has started I feel like that's where it has to start. In all of the, in all of the villages and the towns, a but meeting place for people that has good food and not just a greasy spoon. I and think that's where I think it's yeah, going to ripple out I from. think it has started already. It has more than started, and I think it's not just for people to go away, to come back, but I think we need to actually listen to who's coming in, you know, the visitors who come here and who travel and who see, uh, you know, to experience food around Ireland. You know, the Roscommons, the Sligos, the Leitrims. The word I'm getting back is that they're absolutely amazed with what they're getting. You know, the quality of what's out there. The Average and actually I had written down here about sort of what were the key landmarks and one of the ones like I saying that was in 2011 the Guide de Routard which was France's sort of travel Bible there said that the Irish dining experience is now as good if not better than any anywhere else in the world right that was and it takes quite often someone from the outside to come in to, and to actually see things sort of objectively because we're too close to it Okay, Coleman Andrews came here, who was um, editor-in-chief of Sever magazine, and he wrote a book. He, he, you know, he has written the book on Ferranadri. He's written books on Lig the cuisine of Liguria, the cuisine of, of parts of Spain, all that sort of stuff. And he wrote The Country Cooking of Ireland, and he reckons that the Irish people are more closely knitted to the soil than any other European nation, including the Italians who we keep talking about. All right, Because look at this room. All right, and just I suppose we can't ask everyone, but the idea is just ask, look into your heart. How many generations are you away from actually someone who either kept chickens, grew potatoes, uh, or you know, milked a cow? Normally, you're no more than one or two, okay? And, and, uh, and, the, and that's even if you lived in the city for three, if you're a real dope, <laughs> you know, because there was pigs being kept in here and all that sort of stuff. So there's are, are the allotments and this, that, and the other. So we have to remember our, how often, you know, with the idea of, you know, this time of year of making the blackberry jam and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, we are rooted. We have, you know, moments in the season that we're attached to and they're sort of hidden in plain sight because we don't notice them. That's just what we do at, you know, that's what we do in August. We, you know, we pick the blackberries. And that's what we do in June, you know, I mean, or July. We, we eat the new potatoes and we eat the strawberries. Do you know what I mean? We don't even think about this as sort of a part of our food culture. We just do it. Or we should do more of it because I tell you, it's bloody gorgeous. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I, I don't know if does that answer your question. Or yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so I have a question for both of you, actually, because I'm interested in both of your answers. Um, it would probably help me um, answer a lot of the questions that I get from like family and friends that come visit me from pretty much all over the globe. So um, my question would be, how, wh what do you think is, or how would you define that quintessential Irish food? Like what's iconic, what's an iconic Irish food? What's an emblematic Irish food? Because like, I'm unsure, is it like stew? Is it like, I don't know, fish chowder? What is it? Like for, well, for me, I mean, and it's a very personal thing, but the two most iconic um, Irish things for me that, that represent Ireland, uh, one is the oyster uh, and the other is seaweed. And you, you can argue, anyone can argue against that and say it's the spud. But for me, they are the most 
um, they are rooted in, 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 uh, in 8,000 years of eating, and we're still eating them now. And we've eaten more or less. And I think that the, that is where it should be, as opposed to hanging it all on the potato, which is here about 400 years. Um, uh, but for me, that's uh, when, I, when I champion Irish food, and someone says to me from abroad, I always say, you can, you can expand oyster to shellfish. Um, uh, and that is what I think we, we have best. We have the best uh, bays and the best sea. And Nathan Outlaw was, was, was here recently, in, and he said to me that there's no grade A uh, bays left in England. And, we, and there's five in Ireland. And did anyone know that? There's five grade A bays for growing shellfish, and there's none in England. And, and, and a person uh, who had spent 10 years in England just told me recently that they came back, and she and she's nearly said the exact thing about Martin. She said, she said you, you wouldn't believe how, how connected the Irish people are to the soil. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said the exact same thing. She said, oh, just one or two generations. And she said that when you go, when you ask someone um, uh, in, uh, in Birmingham, where she was there for 10 years, like they have absolutely zero connection to, uh, to food in terms of its growth. Like this, it's just, uh, where, where, was, where does milk come from? And the answer was Tesco. Um, and that's, and, and Channel 4 did a documentary on this uh, going around. And, this, and some of them are scary. Some things that every, at least every Irish person knows that a chicken, well, most of them, has two breasts. Okay? These are questions that you'd imagine that, uh, that a cow has four legs. And these were just questions that people were going, I don't actually know. Like, how big is a cow? And they were like, the size of a dog? Like, uh, and these were serious, and this, this, and that's like, like of epidemic proportions. And these were, this wasn't a comedy. This was like a serious uh, thing. So for me, the, like those emblematic Irish foods, and of course, stew is always going to be there, lamb stew and mutton stew, but like, I would like them to be oysters and seaweed. How about you, Martin? Um, there's a few memories going around in my head. So people ask me, you know, being a chef and that sort of being into food, people saying, oh, Jesus, what's your favorite meal? And I think you know, my favorite meal, sometimes I say, well, I think my favorite meal was Tuesday's meal because you know, when you normally grew up like a family of six, you know, there was the, the mother organized, well, you knew what was happening on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But Tuesday, Tuesday in our house was mashed potatoes with carrot and parsnip mash, right, with butter all mashed together and then with sort of some rashers and sausages. And that, to me, was heaven. Now, my father got sort of a lamb cutlet, you know, and maybe a little <laughs> bit of lamb's liver because he was bringing in the money and we'd be looking at him, hoping he might leave a little bit. And actually, I started working at the age of 10 in a grocery store. And part of what drove me out the door to work is I wanted to have a mixed grill, you know, uh, myself, not just looking at me die in the mixed grill, right? So, so that's really special to me. Stew is really special to me. Like on a hearty day, stew with mashed potatoes, gorgeous. But actually, you mentioned about the salt and the tomato. One of my earliest memories is, 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 the, is we were holidaying, it's 1977, holidaying down on Black Sod and Mayo. We had a picnic, and my mother made, it was, it was batch bread, it was ham, fresh cooked ham. It was a bit of normal butter leaf lettuce, and a bit of butter and some mustard. And I still remember, I still remember the flavor of that. You know, that's what, 40 years ago? 77, yes, 40 years ago. I still vividly, I will never forget the flavor of that sandwich and the crispiness of the lettuce and all those bits together. But I'm thinking about, on winter time, I normally have porridge for breakfast. And that oats that I have, I normally put a spoon of the blackberry and apple jam that I've made from harvesting the, 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 the blackberries this time of year or the last few weeks. 
and I normally have some crushed um, hazelnuts, right, in on top, and milk. I make it half on milk and half on water. And effectively, I'm eating what our ancestors have been eating for the last 8,000 years in that dish, in the oats, in the milk, in the blackberries, in the apples, and in the watch. All I need is a bit of honey now to really milk it, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, that'd, 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 that'd be rude, and, 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 and a glass of mead. But, but actually, you're, what we're actually eating and thinking, oh, this is great, low GI, all this set me up for the day, winter time, is actually replicating our ancestors from 8,000 years ago. And so the lineage has not been broken. So I hope you can tell them that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will tell them that. Actually, to your point, uh, sorry, because um, you were saying that you're a family of six or, yeah. So do you think that the fact that Irish families are so large, do you think that influences the way Irish people consume food? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, 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 maybe, yeah, it, 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 it might do, because actually the other thing is not just that, but I'm thinking about you, uh, JP, you were talking about your father, you should open eat your food sort of thing. Like I'm thinking about the stress, I only have two daughters, like, you know, and then the stress of two people working and trying to, you know, have a bit dinner and your, all this sort of stuff. I'm thinking of six kids and, you know, all different age groups and all that, and all around the table and the stress of all that sort of stuff, you know, there was one that was should open eat your food and get out sort of thing, you know, <laughs> give us a break, you know, so... I, I, you know, I don't know, it, it, a lot depends on the age groups and a lot depends on the social backgrounds and a lot depends also on the skill of the mother or, you know, I'm, I'm being very sexist there, but in our house it was the mother who did all the cooking and she was a great cook, thank God. But I know with that in my house, because I'm after raising two girls and I think my wife has cooked twice in, in the 20 years or so, or 20 odd years we've been married. So, uh, you know, so that's changing now, you know, so. Any more questions? One over here. Well, I'm the famous Italian friend that was talking to, to Ifa about the sandwich. So that was 12 years ago, and a lot of things have changed, I think, in Ireland. So I don't think that... Uh, I haven't seen anyone eating a sandwich that fast for a long time. So <laughs> I certainly think that there is a lot of more passion, time, and uh, commitment to our foods in Ireland. It's kind of a class issue because certain people can afford it and others not. But there is more passion and commitment. But my question is, that how do you balance that, or how do you kind of... Uh, incentivize or maximize on that commitment while at the same time there is also a massive culture that kind of goes uh, like if you go to a supermarket there is a lot of packaged food already which is not fresh and uh, there is a lot of the initiative like like uh, deliver do delivery do or whatever that is or eat it that are incentivizing kind of taking away as opposed to cooking at home and the latest thing i've seen was this weekend in the irish time and is this new app that you can take a picture of your fridge every evening and kind of tells you what you have to buy according to what you have in your fridge. And actually also kind of a, does the shopping for you online. So like these, these are like, a, I suppose, how do you go about the two things at the same time? Um, <coughs> let me see. That's a Sorry. <laughs> I think Sorry, it goes... One, one more question, actually. It's very simple. Because you said seaweed. I have never tasted or eaten seaweed in 12 years in Ireland. What shocking. do you do? With, I know, but oh like... God. What, what you do, you, do? Oh, you can sprinkle it on your porridge. Uh, you can get, but you, you can, uh, absolutely, the, the easiest thing to do is, is buy a little milled container and put it into soup. And, yeah? yeah well, you've got some. Good. Uh, but I've, I've done it with porridge. I don't know if our ancestors ate seaweed and porridge, but I've, I've, I've experimented and it's very nice. But, uh, and also, one of the things is, like, I, I look to Japanese culture so much and they have 
a great fish and great seaweed. And we have both of those things and we, we don't eat them, or particularly raw fish. Um, and making like a lovely dashi, like an Irish dashi with seaweed uh, stock and like um, dried mushrooms. Like that's, those three ingredients are in Ireland and we can, we can, uh, we can use them. Um, I do think the supermarket culture is, uh, is, a, is a big thing. And like Martin was saying that I suppose it's cheaper to, to eat, um, uh, to to eat but we don't have the cooking skills but i think there is a great difficulty in that like you can you can nearly eat uh, you can buy ready meals cheaper than one would be, be able to make them and again I, I think it's either you do something personally or you hope that the government or the eu do something and, and I, I don't th that's the only answer that i can see that how do you incentivize people to uh to, to cook, um, do you uh, make ready-made foods more expensive? I don't know, like it's, and then you'd say, well, it's not fair because those people have no time to cook. Um, and uh, it, is, it is a massive problem um, where we don't have time to eat and we don't have time to cook. And, I, and I, the, the irony is I cook like professionally all my life and sometimes I have no time to cook at home because I'm always working and I'm working. And then I try and like make a day, say I am going to cook today at home. Uh, so the opposite in my house, uh, um, uh, my wife cooks for the kids all the time. And then they, I come home and they hate my food. They got so disgusting, daddy. It's like, you just like put things into the food that I don't like. They're only five and eight. It's like your broccoli, you can't suck it. You have to bite it. And I was like, that's the way broccoli is supposed to be. And they, they asked, so I, I was like, now I just make pasta and cheese for them. And they go, I like it, it's fine. So I gave up with the risotto and the turbots and they were just like, it's disgusting. Uh, so I'll get there with them, but um, but it is like I suppose fundamental about maybe it goes back to the food subject about trying to instill time to cook or time to 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 eat as a as a so as a part of our as part of our day, and I I I don't know how else um, we can um, we can uh, we can tackle that issue. But I think actually it's, it's not just time to eat, but actually it's time, you know, it, we were mentioning the table earlier on, because, you know, we have such actually busy lives, and even I've noticed now raising two girls and being involved in sports and that you're running in from work and you're trying to get food on the table, then you're going out to training or there's a match or there's something. And to get a time where you actually, like I had, I ended up, with, my wife was just like a GAA widow, you know what I mean? Because she said, Jesus, you know, I says, well, why don't you become a mentor? No, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, the idea, the idea of time is taking time out, whether it's with a family, whether it's with a loved one, whether it's with yourself or whatever, to take time out just to actually stop and think, put the phone away, put things away, you know what I mean? And you sort of savour the flavour, you know what I mean? I think, you know, we need to, we're all, I'm guilty of it, I know a lot of people are guilty of it, that, you know, we're on, a, we're on this bloody wheel and we're just going, we need to step back every now and then and just take time. And, and, and you always feel, like, for me, my drug is singing. I, on a Thursday night, I'll go down, sometimes it might be 11 o'clock at night, and I go down and I sing a few songs down in the pub with a gang of guys, and no matter how tired I am, I always feel better coming back at one o'clock in the morning after singing a few songs and listening to music and hearing it at a few points. No matter, you know, because it, it gives you that. But that's time it's, and, and commitment to company, to people, to food or to talking and communication, you know, and I think that's important. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be that, like the house. I mean, I was talking to a woman from Singapore today and, and they say they eat out all the time. But it can be in a restaurant as well. And I think one thing that goes back to self-belief 
that um and this this goes from everything from cafe culture to fine dining was that we like you don't bring your children into the restaurants like they're too loud and like uh, like i think that as irish people like we 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 fail our kids because we do not bring them with us into spaces that we want to go to um and we get a lot of um uh, a lot of international visitors um like from every uh, american and spain France, and they never have any problem bringing their two-year-old into the place and or their one-year-old or their eight-year-old to eat and it's never a kind of is there a kid's menu it's like let's look at the menu first and it's just there's a little bit of self-belief that we need and we actually put it up in the website then we have a kid's policy that if you're happy bringing your kid in we're happy and it's not because the people are ringing can i bring my kid in at nine o'clock and i was like does the kid want to come in and sit down at nine o'clock if they're three or four and sometimes they have the little tablet and they're watching it and they're grand and they don't really care about the environment but we need to create spaces that we can bring our kids to as opposed to you have the pub and home and then your kids don't go anywhere because I, I love the fact when you see particularly Spanish people around wandering the streets at night with their kids at 11 o'clock I know like that might say that's a very bad parent um, <laughs> but I like when you see that because it's a sense of kind of like that that kid is part of of my life as opposed to me trying to structure it around what I, what I think is supposed to be the way that it should be and I think that we, we should have more kids and more uh, uh, children in restaurants because then they'll grow up with a, with a love of food and hopefully they'll bring that back home. Lads, this has been absolutely fascinating, but I think we've just run out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it up. Can I have a whopper round of applause, please, for our two panellists? And we also want to thank once again um, the lovely Ian over here, our producer, who put this together. And finally, Ash and Luca, who've hosted us here this evening and had us part of their ETA series. But um, yeah, thanks again, everyone, for turning out on this lovely evening. Um, I hope you're all going home as inspired and excited about Irish food and Irish cuisine as I am. Thank you for listening into this episode of With Relish. We would like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are a fortnightly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next show. You can download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If you like what you've heard, please let us know by writing us a review or following our Twitter page at WithRelishPod. HPN, the Headstuff Podcast Network. See headstuff.org for more details.